All right, so we are continuing our series through the Minor Prophets, and this morning we, are, we come to the book of Habakkuk. Um, so I'll give you a minute to get there, especially if that's unfamiliar territory to you. You might want to just start at, the end, at, the, at Matthew, you know, the beginning of the New Testament, and go backwards a few books, and you'll find Habakkuk. So while you're turning there, um, I was, had the opportunity to go to Israel a couple times years ago um, when I was pastor of college ministry at our church in Chicago, and uh, we had some native Israeli missionaries that we supported, and we visited them a couple times. In fact, if you know the Alex and Betsy, um, missions partners of ours that we support Southeast Asia, who are going to actually be here on the 20th, and Alex is going to be preaching on the 25th. They were actually on this trip as college students before they got married. Um, one of these trips, they were on it uh, with me. So anyway, we would do some service for one week, and then we got to see some of the sites kind of guided by our friends and these, these missionaries the other week. And both times I went, we went up to En Gedi. So you're hiking up on the you know, rocks and hills everywhere, and you're kind of going up through this area, and it's hills on this side, hills on this side. And um, both times, which was so cool, I was even praying the second time that this would happen, we saw deer on the way up to En Gedi, which is kind of like a, an oasis where David found refuge when he was fleeing from um, Saul. Both, time we, both times we saw deer, and we watched them just run up the sides of these mountains. It was crazy. This steep, rocky cliff. And if you tried to go up, you'd be slipping and falling and you'd be bloody by the time you got up. But these deer just bing, bing, bing. It's just like spring up the side of this hill. Um, and so the book of Habakkuk ends with this language of God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's or hind's feet on high places. You know, the hind is another term for this deer. Um, he makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So um, if, if you want to get a picture of how amazing this is, this, this image that we'll close with this morning, later, uh, don't do it now. This is dangerous to do because everybody's got an electronic device that's connected, but Google the incredible Ibex defies gravity and BBC. And there's a video that'll just blow your mind of these Ibex, which is kind of like a deer-goat hybrid sort of thing, but it'll give you a picture of, of the point. Anyway, these deer actually go up the side of a dam, which is about like this steep, and they're going up because the dam leaches calcium and sodium and they need that. And so they go up and they, you know, like lick the side of the dam. But the fact that they go up this, it's just, it just is crazy. So again, it's a picture, and we'll come back to that at the end. You might feel like you're, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Two Left Feet spiritually, even on level ground. But God wants to make us like those deer, like those goats, to tread on the high places. And he's going to use Habakkuk the grace and truth in this little powerful book uh, to help us get there. So uh, there's an outline that you can follow along on the, uh, the slides. If you do have an electronic device, you can also pull up the, the notes on our live stream page and follow along that way. So uh, we're going to just read it as we go along rather than read the whole thing now. Uh, we will read most of the book, not all of it, um, but I'd encourage you to spend some more time um, studying it yourself because we're just going to be scratching the surface here this morning. So, um, first point, why won't you do something? Verses 1 to 4. So let's dive in here. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. 
So justice goes forth perverted. It's like 2,600 years old. Sounds pretty relevant and contemporary, doesn't it? So we don't know much about the man Habakkuk, but we do know that he was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah near the last quarter of the 7th century B.C., so probably between 626 or so and 605 B.C. So on the political scene at the time, Assyria was the world power, but their power was on the decline. They had already conquered the northern kingdom, okay, Israel, uh, whenever the, the uh, nation was split, the northern kingdom is usually referred to as Israel, southern kingdom as Judah. Okay? So they had conquered in 722 the northern kingdom, and that was the judgment of God on a very rebellious, idolatrous northern kingdom. And now the Babylonians, or the Chaldeans they'll be called here in Habakkuk, um, were the rising power, and they would conquer Assyria and Egypt and assume dominance in that area, before the 7th century ended. And they would begin conquering Judah around 605, which was when Daniel and his buddies got carted to Babylon. Okay, If you read the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then they would completely burn Jerusalem to the ground in 587, 586 B.C. And Lamentations is Jeremiah's response to that final destruction. So just to give you a little bit of context there and remind us of where we are in history, okay? So that's the political scene outside of Judah, and it's vital for understanding Habakkuk, but the world politics are not what's bothering Habakkuk at this point in chapter 1. He's concerned about the spiritual climate in Judah among the so-called people of God. And if you read in other places, like for instance, where things were at when Josiah took the throne and made Reforms, you can understand how things were bad when Habakkuk is prophesying here. So he's saying, how long? Like, I'm your prophet, I'm crying out, but even among your people, there's violence and iniquity, destruction, strife, contention. The law seems to be paralyzed. Justice doesn't go forth. The wicked surround the righteous. There certainly was a faithful remnant but it seemed like the wicked were stronger and, and winning. So he's crying out, and this is the right thing to do. Like, when you cry out like this, it's probably because you're not okay with things as they are. And we shouldn't be okay with the world and its fallenness and with unrighteousness and injustice. He's longing for God's kingdom to come on earth, his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So have you found yourself asking questions like this lately? <laughs> How long? Why? Seems like God's just maybe sitting idly by. You resonate with that? I mean, if so, again, that might be the righteous cry of the heart. It also is something where we might want to check our motives. Why do we ask these questions? Sometimes our complaint can be driven by something other than the glory of God and the good of others. It can be because our comfort and our ease are threatened. And that's not Habakkuk's primary motivation here. And it, we need to be careful it's not ours as well. But rather that it's our concern about God's name and the good of his people and the good of our neighbors as well that we are called to love and serve. So you can imagine the questions in Habakkuk's mind. Have you just ceased working among your people? Like, why haven't you done something about this? When are you going to make things right? So there's Habakkuk's complaint. Now God's going to respond. Point number two. I am doing something. Verses 5 to 11. So this second section is God responding. Your Bible may have little headings, um, to help you see when that's changing. But if not, I'm just flagging it here. Verses 5 to 11 is actually God responding to Habakkuk. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation 
who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity goes forth from themselves or go forth from themselves. Like they're a law unto themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it, like building a mound so that they can come up to the door and break it open and conquer that city. They sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. So God responds to Habakkuk's complaint, his questions. I'm not going to leave the wicked unpunished. I'm not going to let this injustice go unpunished. I am going to judge it. And here's how. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans to do it as a tool in my hand. Who are these Chaldeans? I mean, you read this description. Maybe you can sort of feel the horror of how Habakkuk might have heard this, but probably not. I think it's easy to hold this out at arm's length. You know, we don't have a clue of what it would feel like to be on the receiving end of the wrath of an evil, cruel superpower, especially as citizens of the U.S. at this time in history. We have an army that would go you know, we have armed forces that would just go fight that battle for us, and hopefully it wouldn't come too much to our shores. But imagine yourself in a little country like Israel. And let's say today some arm of some radical militant is Islamic group grew strong enough that they started carrying out jihad in other surrounding nations and conquering them. And let's say the economy declined to the point in your country and your military strength was, was such that you were just flat out no match for them. You are vastly outgunned and outmanned and they are coming. And God tells you that they're coming and God tells you that he's the one that's raising them up to judge the wickedness in your nation. I mean, just, just stop and put yourself in Habakkuk's shoes this is like facing imminent death. Painful, like scary. I mean, the Babylonians were just wicked, nasty people. There's pictures you can see of how they used to chain people up and hook them by the nose and drag them out. I mean, they would slaughter plenty when they came in, but they would also take some people and just, you know, like literally hook them by the nose and drag them out and make them captives and slave labor and so forth. And they would do worse things than that. So, the great I am says to Habakkuk, I am doing something. I'm not ever sitting idly by. So Habakkuk had cried out, why do you look on idly at wrong? And the Lord responds with, look among the nations and see. And Habakkuk's like, well, why would I look there? And Yahweh says, I am at work, and the way that I'm at work is going to shock you. I'm going to judge the wickedness in Judah with a nation more wicked yet. So you can understand, like, Habakkuk, that's not a particularly helpful answer. He's even more confused at this point. This is not what he expected. And so his response is basically in verses 12 through the end of chapter 1 and Chapter 2, verse 1, third point here. His, his response is basically like, what? <laughs> what? He is really wrestling with what seems like two sets of incompatible truths. Like, how can this be? So look at the third point here. One twelve to two one. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So certainly we in Judah are not 
as righteous as we ought to be, but we're not like the Babylonians. So why would you let them, they're way more wicked than we are, swallow us up? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He, that's the personification of Babylon, brings them all up with a hook. Remember? I told you that was one of the ways that they would take these people captive. They'd literally hook them around, you know, in the nose and drag them out. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. In other words, their might was their God, right? And by their might, they enriched themselves by conquering all these, you know, other kingdoms. And so they worshipped their might. They made sacrifices to their dragnet because by this military might, they gained so much power and so much plunder and all of this. And then Habakkuk says in verse 17, is he, again, personification of Babylon, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? So again, it's how long? He's saying, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? How long is this going to go on? So then in 2.1, he says, all right, I'm going to take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he, God, will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Okay, Lord, I'm ready. So if you're left hanging with some questions here, like how could God do that? Why would God do that? Then you're in good company. That's exactly how Habakkuk reacted. And so it, it might be helpful to just stop for a second and consider the fact that oftentimes God's ways are counterintuitive. I mean, has that ever hit you before in your life? Probably most of us. How often does it seem like it's one step forward, two back? And that could be on an individual level, you as a Christian. It could be, you know, at a church level. It could be at a broader societal level. And we wonder, why? But again, God is not idle. He is at work. Oftentimes, the lamp does not show the end of the road. It only shows the next few steps. And that's what we see by faith. But his lamp is a trustworthy lamp. So there's an Old Testament scholar named Elizabeth Actemeyer. She wrote this. She said, The implications of such a revelation are staggering for our world. For such a word from God implies that the turmoil and violence and death in our societies may not be evidence of God's absence from our lives, but instead the witness to his actual working in judgment as he pursues his purpose. No event in human history, therefore, is to be understood as divorced from his lordly action and will. God is always at work, always involved, always pressing forward toward his kingdom. But the means by which he chooses to pursue that goal may be as astounding as the destruction of a nation or as incomprehensible as the blood dripping from the figure of a man on a cross. God's ways are not our ways. They're higher than our ways. And oftentimes, it's counterintuitive to us. So to bring it a little closer to home, maybe you've seen this in your own life or somebody close to you. God can use cancer to free you from your fear of death and make you more like a Christian pilgrim that is eagerly awaiting your homeland, your true and eternal home with God. God can use job loss or financial trouble to pour out the riches of his mercy. I've seen God use MS to help a brother or sister run the race that's set before them. Not in their own strength, but in his and with their eyes fixed on Jesus. 
God can actually lighten our burdens by first increasing them and crushing us under their weight so that we despair of carrying on in our own strength and we have to rely on his. And so his power is perfected in our weakness and all of a sudden what was so heavy and crushing becomes light and momentary affliction. And sometimes he takes away and gives us nothing in order to fill us up and give us more of himself. So with God, even backward is forward. Counterintuitive ways, but his wise, good, loving ways. So now let's look at Lord's answer to Habakkuk's second round of questions. Um, and this is found in the rest of chapter two. So this is point number four. Trust me, that's ultimately God's response if we were to summarize it in two words. Um, this is chapter 2, verses 2 to 20. We'll start with just the first two verses here. So the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come. It will not delay. So God responds to Habakkuk saying, I'm not just raising up the Chaldeans to judge, though I am. And, you know, somewhere between 626 and 605, Habakkuk is, is preaching. So there was time between that and when Babylon shows up in 605 and drags some people away. And then there's more time between that and 586, 587, when Babylon crushes Jerusalem. And then there's even more time between that and 539 when the Medes rose up and crushed the Babylonians and they got their just desserts. So do you see? It took a while for the justice to come home to the Babylonians. So write the vision now, Habakkuk. And wait. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Okay? So the vision is not only about the coming of the Chaldeans to judge Judah, but it's also about the judgment of the Chaldeans once they have conquered Judah. God is going to give them what they deserve as well. It might seem for a while like their wickedness goes unpunished, but wait for it. And so the key is actually found in 2.4. So it's going to come. Wait for it. Behold, his soul. This is that personification of Babylon. His soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. So they are unrighteous. They're proud and arrogant. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Trust me, Habakkuk, and write it down so that all of my people will trust me in the face of these threats. So, he wants Habakkuk to know that he is not sitting back idly, that he is going to both use the Chaldeans to judge the wickedness in Israel, and then he's going to judge the wickedness in the Chaldeans. He's not sitting idly by. Justice will be meted out. They're going to get what they deserve. They will not get away with their cruel injustices forever. And so he uses some woes to make it clear that he's at work and this is what's going to ultimately happen. So we can kind of move through these quickly and just take note of them. So first, in verse 5, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who's never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, the grave, like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all peoples, all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So uh, apparently um, the Babylonians, was kind of well known that they were, uh, um, they just loved wine. <laughs> and that was like kind of an addiction among the Babylonians. And so wine is actually a gift from God to gladden the heart. But if you love and serve it, if you're addicted to it, you run to it as a refuge and, and for the peace that only God can give, it will actually betray you and steal your life. Okay? So that's what he's saying here. Wine is a traitor. 
and it's greedy and it can just suck you in and steal your life. Verses 6 to 8, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So you can see the, the poetic justice there. The Babylonians think in their pride that they own what they've stolen, all the plunder from all these cities that they've plundered. But from God's perspective, they're actually bankrupt. So you don't get richer the more loans you take out. <laughs> you go further into debt. So their prosperity is actually just a farce. It's a dream, and they're about to be woken up by the knock of the collection officers on their door. When you conquer a bunch of kingdoms, you also make a bunch of enemies. And sometimes it comes back on your head, and that's exactly what's going to happen with them. Unjust gain will eventually catch up with you. Okay? Which leads into the next woe here in verses 9 to 11. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. So evil gain at the expense of others for the sake of your own prosperity, your own security. Instead of building this peaceful refuge of a house, you built yourself a haunted house. So all of the, the stuff that they gained to set themselves up on their perch, it's all done by violence and injustice. So their houses are like a constant testimony to their sin. So the stone is crying out from the wall, injustice, blood, violence, do you see? So their houses are like a, a, a haunted house. So here, here's like maybe a more modern example. Can you enjoy a good test score when you've cheated on the exam? Doesn't that good grade just constantly mock and testify against you? Or cheating, let's say, on taxes. You may have more money, but whatever you use that money for, in a sense, it's reminding of you, it's reminding you, it's giving testimony of that cheating. So perhaps you've heard the, the kind of proverbial saying, a clean conscience is the softest pillow. Their house is a haunted house because of the injustice that built that up. But those who live by faith refuse to build their houses by that kind of injustice, and so a clean conscience can give peaceful rest. Um, 12 to 14, the next woe, and this is the last one we'll look at here um, this morning. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So, again, the vision that Habakkuk has to wait for that will surely come in due time is not just the fact that the Chaldeans are going to invade, but it's also that they're going to eventually get what they deserve. They're going to be judged because at the end of the day, nobody can stop God's kingdom-building plan. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Nobody can get in the way of that kingdom-building project. Not North Korea with their new, you know, intercontinental ballistic missile. Not China. Not any nation. Nobody can stop God's plan and program. The earth will be filled. So Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. So no earthly nation is going to be able to just 
flaunt injustice and wickedness in God's face indefinitely. Just can't. He gives them as much leash as he wills, and he can judge them whenever he wills. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So anyone who's working against God's purposes is ultimately toiling for fire. It's a futile fight. They will lose. So do you see how that's encouraging to Habakkuk and it should be encouraging to us? Because we, we can't change, you know, political history and the future and we can just see all these things that are happening. They're outside of our control and we can be afraid and fearful. But Habakkuk is hearing God say, listen, I'm in control. My kingdom is going to come no matter what. Nothing can get in the way of that. So trust me and wait. So the righteous shall live by his faith, which is picked up three times in the New Testament. Hugely important verse in the New Testament. Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and then Hebrews 10 as well. How in the world, like we can look at these evil nations out there, but we've all got evil in here. So how can we live and not die? In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. The wages of sin is death. So how in the world are we on God's side, God on our side, for us, not against us? Well, the righteous shall live by faith. So Jesus comes to live the life we couldn't live because we've all gone astray. We're all naturally sinners. And so he dies on the cross in our place so that we can be made righteous. We can be righteous by faith. It's a gift by his grace. Reconciled to the Father and we will live by faith in this life and then we will live forever with him. Right? Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But what is this Righteous will live by faith. What's that look like? What's that sound like in a situation like this, under threats like this for Habakkuk? And that brings us to the fifth point, the last point here in chapter 3, that joy and strength is in Yahweh no matter what. So Habakkuk is honest. Look at chapter 3. It's a prayer to close. It's his final response. And he says, O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive your work. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So he's fearful. He's pleading for mercy. He's trembling. If you look down in verse 16, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Like the fact that this is coming, I'm just cringing. The Babylonians are going to come and knock on the door and conquer us. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. So he's trembling, but he's praying to the Lord. He's not complaining about the Lord. He's also not just complaining about his circumstances. He's taking those complaints and those fears and those concerns to the Lord, and he's an example for us in that. And then it is so important to see what he does in chapter 3, verses 3 to 15. Okay, we might have trouble because it, it's kind of poetic and there's a lot of references to places that might seem unfamiliar. So God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. He rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He, sh he looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian and tr did tremble. So you can just be like, what in the world is he talking about? This is a poetic rehearsal of the Exodus deliverance. He's thinking back on how God has delivered his people from heavy-handed, oppressive rule in the past. Was your wrath against the rivers? 
You know, when God spread the Jordan so they could pass through? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea, the Red Sea? When you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, you split the earth with rivers, the mountains saw you and wreathed. Is that maybe an allusion to Sinai? The raging waters swept on, the deep gave forth its voice, it lifted its hands on high, the sun and moon stood still in their place. Remember Joshua and Gibeah? At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury, you threshed the nations in anger. So you did that to Egypt, the enemies of God's people, and you also did that when your people entered into the promised land. All these pagan nations that were cruel and wicked, you actually displaced them, you took care of them so that your people could come into the promised land. So why did he do all of this? You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. So it took a long time, right? They had to wait for it, 400 years in in Egypt, but he did deliver. He showed his sovereignty over Pharaoh and Egypt and all of their gods. He showed his sovereignty over the pagan Canaanites as they entered into the promised land. And he did it for the salvation of his people. And so Habakkuk is basically saying right here, do it again, Lord. I see the vision. I've heard you. I I know your ways are inscrutable, that your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But I, I believe you. I'm trembling. And I am humbly pleading in wrath, remember mercy, please. You've done it before. Do it again. The Babylonians are coming. They are going to wreak havoc and destroy Jerusalem. But you are also coming for the salvation of your people. I know it. It might not be on our timetable, but I know it. Your kingdom is coming, and not even the Chaldeans can stop that. That's the life of faith, right? The righteous shall live by faith. Looking back on God's track record and remembering his past deliverances and rehearsing them so that in the present, their faith is served to trust in the Lord with all their heart. Knowing that he's going to make good on his promises, every single one of them, even if we have to wait. So we live by faith in the present between the past deliverance of God and the future fulfillment of his promises. We look back in faith at his track record. We look ahead to his promises and we live by faith in the moment, patiently waiting for God to make good on what he said he would do. So this is the life of faith. This is Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. And what does he do? He rehearses them. He looks back. He's forgiven all your iniquities. Heals your diseases. Crowns you with steadfast love and compassion. So walking by faith doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Habakkuk was heading right into more suffering, not away from it. He's trembling as he faces the future. But he's facing that future in faith. And look at the beautiful climax in verses 17 to 19. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So, I mean, this is a situation of, like, deprivation in every way, total famine, and there's no fruit, which means no figs, no grapes, no grapes, no wine, in a society with limited water supply, no olives or olive oil, that's a huge deal to them, and this Italian, that would be a big deal to me, Um, no crops, I mean, are you kidding me? The the fields yield no food? How long are you going to last? No bread, no sheep or cattle? 
means no milk, no meat, no money from the sale of livestock, no clothes or shoes. This is an agrarian society. There's no grocery stores. There's very little imports from other countries. There's no food pantries or homeless shelters. And there's no welfare system. This is utter destitution that he is facing. And yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. What? Maybe now it's our turn to say, what? (laughs) How in the world could Habakkuk rejoice in the midst of that? I mean, don't downplay the choice of words here. He doesn't say, yet I will grip my teeth and bear it. We'll just suck it up and make it through. He says, we will rejoice. I will rejoice and take joy in the God of my salvation. How in the world do you do that? Again, I think this is pretty relevant. (laughs) Because we, in the midst of hard times, should not just merely survive. Don't you want to thrive with the joy of the Lord as your strength? Well, he's exulting, he's taking joy, he's rejoicing in the Lord. In a person who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Not in his circumstances, which ebb and flow, and they're up and down. People and things of this world are so fickle, uncertain, unreliable. But the Lord, perfectly faithful, trustworthy, and true. It's like, it's, it's why Paul in Philippians 3, he says, I count everything as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Jesus is at the center. His trust and his joy was wrapped up in this person who would never leave him or forsake him, no matter the ebbs and flows of his circumstances, his safety, his health, his financial security, which is why in chapter 4 of Philippians that Glenn read, he says rejoice in the Lord always. That's the only way you can rejoice always is if it's in the Lord. And this is not unrealistic kind of rose-colored glasses. Paul suffered. He's in prison when he wrote that letter. It was reality for Paul, and he wanted it to be for the Philippians, and God wants it to be for us. Whether we're sick or well, whether we're well-supplied or in want, if our joy is in the Lord. The Lord wants to build our joy on the rock of his glorious person and faithfulness and deliverances and promises, not the sand of circumstances. Or again, in the context of our current cultural kind of political moment, I heard an interview with David Platt. I haven't read this book yet, but he recently put out a book entitled Before You Vote, Seven Questions Every Christian Should Ask. And this was the quote that kind of caught my attention. And I think this is maybe a quote from the book. He said this, Even if we lose every freedom and protection we have as followers of Jesus in the United States, not that we want to, but even if, And even if our government were to become a completely totalitarian regime, we could still live an abundant life as long as we didn't look to political leaders, platforms, or policies for our ultimate security and satisfaction. No amens? Do you believe that? Even if the economy collapses? Even if we lose our freedoms, even if you lose your job, your health. Now, some of you might be feeling like, well, that's nice, but it's just totally unrealistic or impossible. Or or it just seems like, what is this, some kind of spiritual stoicism, like stuffing it down and, you know, put on a happy face, you know, rejoice in the Lord. How you doing? That is not what this is. What this is, is so important for us to learn. So um, this guy named Eric, Dr. Eric Tonnes, um, quote that's been so helpful for me over the years. I've quoted it before. It's been a while, but listen to this. There's this idea that to live out of conformity with how I feel is hypocrisy, but that's a wrong definition of hypocrisy. To live out of conformity to what I believe is hypocrisy. To live in conformity with what I believe in spite of what I feel isn't hypocrisy. It's integrity. So of course it's going to be hard. 
Of course we're going to tremble. Of course we're going to have anxiety. But you can fight that by faith in accord with your convictions and oftentimes your feelings will follow. So rather than be ruled by our feelings, the truth of God rules our feelings. That's the fight of faith. The righteous shall live by faith so that we can rehearse the faithfulness of God, trust Him, wait for Him, and be able to say, though the fig tree should not blossom, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll take joy in the God of my salvation. See, Habakkuk had begun to taste the salvation of God, right? The people of God had tasted his deliverances throughout history, but certainly they weren't fully and finally free. But here's, here's the point. Just as the past faithfulness of God, nobody can take that from you. No one can take the future faithfulness of God from you. So we need to remember the past faithfulness of God and let's be Christians on this side of the cross and say, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can anybody take that from you? If God justifies, who can condemn? Nobody. And if you are in Christ, Romans 8, 18 is true. Paul says, I don't consider the suffering of this present time worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. If he didn't spare his only son, but willingly gave him up for us all, how much more will he graciously give us everything that we need? And then he's going to give us himself forever, new heavens, new earth, fullness of joy forever. Nobody, nothing can take any of that from you. So do you see how we live by faith in the present, looking back to something that cannot be taken from us and looking ahead to something that cannot be taken from us? So we cannot be wired as, what have you done for me lately (laughs) with God? You know, based on my circumstances, he loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. No, he loves us. Look at the cross. He's with us. And he will be with us to the end no matter what. So let's wait on him and trust in him. The righteous shall live by faith. And though the fig tree should not blossom, and everything is taken away, we can rejoice, not just grin and bear it or grit our teeth and bear it, but we can rejoice in the Lord and take joy in the God of our salvation. If that is our daily orientation, it's going to put our lack and trials in perspective. You know, Paul learned the secret of contentment. And certainly it's going to put the petty annoyances and disappointments in the periphery because Jesus is going to be at the center So may it be that salvation for us is not deliverance from, primarily, pain, suffering, discomfort, etc. in this life. Because if that's what we really want to be delivered from, then our gods are going to fail us when trouble, famine, tribulation, and death hit. But if God is the God of our salvation, then we're not primarily looking to be delivered from pain, suffering, and discomfort in this life. We are looking to be delivered from sin and hell and death and the devil. Those are way bigger threats than suffering on this planet for 80 years or whatever. And follow me here. Sometimes you need to be delivered into the hands of pain, suffering, temptation, discomfort, loss, persecution, insult, in order to be delivered from placing your trust in all that is not God. The righteous shall live by faith in the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord, which is why James, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So trials are a gift because endurance and maturity are worth more than comfort and ease. So like Job, he gives and takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And like James, he gives when he takes away. So that our joy is in the Lord. It's built with strong, not card house, joy and and peace and contentment, but stable, secure joy on the rock 
of the God of our salvation. So God wants to make you and me like the ibex that can scale a dam sure-footed and stable in the steeps, the heights of trials and temptations and challenges. So when God doesn't make sense, Habakkuk is here for you (laughs) to help you navigate and scale the heights so that your faith will be stable and your joy will be full. So a little closing quote from Spurgeon here before the worship team comes up to sing a closing song. From a sermon called A Happy Christian, he, he said this, the worldling blesses God while he gives him plenty, but the Christian blesses him when he smites him. He believes him to be too wise to err and too good to be unkind. He trusts him where he cannot trace him, looks up to him in the darkest hour and believes that all is well. So we're going to sing the song, We Will Feast in the House of Zion. So guess what, folks? Though the fig tree does not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the, the, fold, the fields yield no food, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off in the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet we can rejoice because we know that we will feast in the house of Zion. And actually, this chapter three is supposed to be learned like a song by heart. Did you notice all the, the musical notations? According to Shigianoth, whatever tune that is, um, three one, Selah, a couple times, and then at the end, to the choir master with stringed instruments, because you know what? We need to learn this song by heart so that we have a song when we're in the dark facing the trials and the anxiety-producing circumstances. So we need to sing this song, learn this song of God's faithfulness so well that we can sing it in the dark. So the team can come now. We're going to sing to close. Lord, you are so good and so faithful, and your salvation is so great. And it's so easy, though, Lord, to lose sight of your greatness and the greatness of your salvation. Restore to us the joy of your salvation. Help us to trust in you with all our heart. And no matter what, may our joy and our strength be in you. In Jesus' name, amen.